This has been a great weekend here at ZPC. I don't know how many of you know it, but uh, there have been 54 high school kids here, high school guys here, on uh, an awakening. Now, awakening is the, the high school part of uh, the great banquet, and uh, they've had a fantastic time. That's the word I'm getting anyway, and uh, just a great, a great, great time together. And I might mention, uh, Don referred to the great banquet. If you've never been on a great banquet... I can't tell you how important it is. Um, of all the churches that I served, I served three churches, uh, all three of them, if we were to talk about what was the greatest source of spiritual growth, what was the greatest cause for vitality, it would be the great banquet. And I know that's been true of this church too. So if you've not been on one, there is a, there's a table out in uh, uh, the, the hall or out in the, the gathering space and, and you can find out more about it. Also, I might mention that uh, Pat and Laura Smith this weekend are in the great Northwest, and their son is being married. And so I just wanted you to know that, and when you see them, uh, congratulate them and tell them how, how excited you are for them, uh, a very special occasion. And I want to say, as I say week after week, but I mean it, you're a great church, and God has tremendous plans and potential for you in the future. I believe it with all my heart. And we're going to see God's will unfold as the future unfolds before us. Author and speaker Brennan Manning, and I know he's spoken here in the past uh, quite a while ago, uh, talks uh, an, about an amazing story of how he got the name Brennan. While growing up, his best friend was a guy named Ray. The two of them did everything together. As teenagers, they bought a car together, they double dated together. They went to school together and so forth. They even enlisted in the army together and went to boot camp together and fought on the front lines together. One night while sitting in a foxhole, Brennan was reminiscing about the old days in Brooklyn while Ray listened and ate a chocolate bar. Suddenly a live grenade came into the foxhole. Ray looked at Brennan, smiled dropped his chocolate bar, and then threw himself on the live grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but sparing the life of Brennan. When Brennan became a priest, he was instructed to take the name of a saint. He thought of his friend, Ray Brennan, and he took the name Brennan. Years later, he went to visit Ray's mom in Brooklyn. They sat until late evening, having tea together. Then Brennan asked her, Do you think Ray really loved me? Mrs. Brennan got up. She got up off the couch. She shook her finger in his face and said, What more could he have done for you? Brennan said at that moment he had an epiphany. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus Christ, and he imagined Jesus' mother Mary pointing her finger at him and saying, what more could he have done to show that he really loved you? On this first Sunday in the season of Lent, we begin our walk toward the Last Supper on Monday, Thursday, the cross on Good Friday, and the empty tomb on Easter except for next week when we celebrate our 30th anniversary, and I hope you'll all be here. We're going to focus on Jesus, the suffering servant. 
He was doing all that he could do to show us how much God really loved us. And in so doing, Jesus became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As we did on the first Sunday in Advent, and that's a long time ago if you'll remember back in, in December, we're going to be looking together at the writings of the prophet Isaiah. Both Jesus' birth and his death are prophesied 700 years before that took place here on this earth. Isaiah is writing at a time when the northern kingdom of Israel has fallen to the armies of the Assyrians. He is warning Judah, the southern kingdom, that their day of judgment for their waywardness also will come unless they repent. And looking at the end of Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53, when Jesus is portrayed as the suffering servant, we see a startling, graphic, and accurate picture of what Jesus endured when he gave his life for us on a cruel, barbaric cross. The suffering servant passage is the fourth of the servant songs in Isaiah. We're going to look briefly at four of the five stanzas that are found in this song as we think about how much God really loves us. He was willing to go to this extent to demonstrate that love for us. If you would, follow along with me in your Bibles if you brought them, or your pew Bibles are on the screen, as I read from Isaiah chapter 52, beginning with verse 13, and then 53 through verse 9. Listen now for the word of the Lord. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. 
He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. May God add his understanding, his blessing, and then his application to this, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please pray with me. Good and gracious God, it's so good to be here today. It's good to worship you. It's good to sing together, to pray together. It's good to hear your word together. In a way that's far beyond my doing, by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would speak to each one of us today. Speak to the people and the preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. The first stanza that we're going to look at, which is found in chapter 53, 52, verses 13 through 15, is suffering through obedience. That might be the heading for that stanza. The first verse or stanza of this song shows that God's servant is willing to suffer out of obedience to the creator, master designer of all that is. It is not an imposed or a forced obedience, but a voluntary obedience motivated by love. David McKenna, a pastor and educator, spells out this intent with these words. The servant's decision to suffer is not a matter of blind obedience to the iron will of God. The prophet tells us that he made the choice prudently or as a result of practical wisdom. This idea of acting prudently is found in the word wisely in the translation which we read, knowing full well what the horrendous things were going to be and would happen to him as the servant whom we now believe was Jesus. He voluntarily adjusts himself to God's big picture plan of salvation. He was willing to to endure all of it so that we might experience forgiveness and a right relationship with God. The Apostle Paul understood well this idea when he realized that Jesus was reversing what the one man Adam had done when he sinned. In Romans 5.19, he wrote, For just as through the disobedience of the man, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the man, many will be made righteous. I like what Eugene Peterson writes when he captures this idea, when he says, Though there were auspicious signs that preceded and accompanied his birth, preparing the world for the majesty and the kingly. The birth of Jesus itself was of the humblest peasant parentage in an unimportant town, in the roughest of buildings. He made a career of rejecting marks of status or privilege. He loved lepers, washed the feet of his disciples, befriended little children, encouraged women to join his entourage, and finally, Submitted to crucifixion by a foreign power. Think about it. In a premeditated way, Jesus, as the servant, was putting himself completely at God's disposal, willing to suffer so that God's ultimate purpose might be accomplished. With that in mind, is it too much for us as we think about our lives 
Is it too much for us to think that we could take up the towel and be obedient disciples, being willing to care for and wash the feet of the world around us? Second stanza, suffering through rejection, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53. Probably from the very beginning of his life, Jesus was a kind of outcast. Did you ever think about that? Probably, he was living in a small town for sure, and probably, since he was born or conceived at least out of wedlock, that people looked down on him. The terms tender plant and a root out of dry ground speak of a young shoot and an impoverished root, referring to the scandal of his beginnings. Rejected. Jesus wasn't the CQ model, GQ model, as he matured, we would think he, would, he wouldn't be a candidate for, let's say, a leading actor, a leading man actor, or some political figure. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing is in his appearance that we should desire him. By anyone's physical standards, I mean, Jesus was not Messiah material. This rejection becomes a kind of physical repulsion, in fact, during this trial and flogging when he's tortured. I believe he had a transparent face portraying his mental and physical anguish. And even though with all of the violence and the gore portrayed today on television, movies and books, we've kind of become desensitized, I have a feeling if we had been there, we would have been repulsed and would have turned our face the other way if we tried to look him in the eyes. Philip Yancey, in his book, Disappointment with God, writes these difficult words. Author Henri Nouwen tells a story of a family in Paraguay. The father, a doctor, spoke against the military regime there and its human rights abuses. Local police took the revenge on him by arresting his teenage son and torturing him to death. Enraged townsfolks wanted to turn the boy's funeral into a huge protest march, but the doctor chose another means of protest. At the funeral, the father displayed his son's body as he had found it in jail, naked, scarred from the electric shocks and cigarette burns and beatings. All the villagers filed past the corpse, which lay not in a coffin, but on the blood-stained mattress from the prison. It was the strongest protest imaginable, for it put injustice on grotesque display. Yancey goes on to say, isn't that what God did at Calvary? The cross that held Jesus' body naked and marked with scars exposed all the violence and injustice of this world. At once the cross revealed what kind of world we have and what kind of God we have. A world of gross unfairness. A God of sacrificial love. Third stanza, the suffering of pain, verses 4 through 6. Now Isaiah seems to move into the physical suffering of the servant at this point. He was stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished, and wounded. What a barrage of physical suffering. Why did God allow him to go through all of this? 
He was taking up our infirmities. He was carrying our sorrows. The Lord was laying on him the iniquity of all of us and our sin, all who have ever lived. Why was this necessary? Well, because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Probably the sheep image here doesn't really resonate with most of us. How many of you have spent a lot of time with sheep? Any of you? A few, a few, not many. Well, Jason Bellows, in the great sheep escape, which appeared on the BBC online, had some insights into sheep. See if this sounds familiar. Why do sheep have shepherds? Because it is the very nature of sheep to stray and get into harm's way, whether that be with hungry wolves or steep canyons. For centuries, shepherds have used various methods from staff to dog to keep sheep from straying from the safety of their care. In recent times, shepherds have turned to other more sophisticated methods. One method, maybe you've seen this, is a metal hoof-proof grid that is built in the ground around the sheep's territory. The animals cannot walk over the grid, which is eight feet wide. This works well in keeping sheep in the protection of the pen. However, in early 2006, shepherds in Yorkshire, in England, found that they had a group of sheep to care for that were not only stubbornly prone to stray, but also crafty. One of the sheep figured out a way to transgress the boundaries. It laid down and rolled over the grid. The other sheep saw it, and they followed the stray leader. And, and all the sheep then spread out over the countryside and found their way to neighborhood gardens where they ate the food and flowers of local residents. The shepherds eventually gathered up the troublesome sheep and returned them to their pen. But again, they escaped and got into trouble. And again, while the special knowledge of escape of this entire herd of black sheep may have seemed like an exciting adventure, it actually placed the animals in harm's way as several of the sheep wandered onto busy nearby roads and were accosted by local residents' dogs. Oh, dear friends, doesn't that sound like us? We're creative. Gratefully, our good shepherd was willing to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He did so by becoming the ultimate sacrifice for us and our salvation on a cruel cross. Fourth stanza, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Even though he had done nothing wrong, the servant remained silent. Had it been me, huh, I would have raised shouts of righteous indignation, proclaiming my innocence passionately. Some of us don't suffer silently, do we? We want to vindicate ourselves or, at the very least, make others miserable alongside of us. At Jesus' trial, even though he's accused by false witnesses, he remains silent. His silence infuriates the religious leaders, so they blindfold him, and I picture them spinning him around and slapping him, 
hoping to incite his anger. They even spat upon him, but he remained silent. Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy that happened 700 years before by the prophet Isaiah. David McKenna speaks to this silence with these thoughtful words. Behind the fiasco, however, is the proof that the servant suffered because of his sinlessness. He was falsely accused, unjustly condemned, conveniently executed, and disgracefully buried. Not a shred of evidence had been found proving that he had broken civil laws by violence and moral laws by deceit. Suffering in silence is more than gritting our teeth against false accusations. It is the inner peace of innocence that only Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, has known. No one else could pay the penalty of our sins. Without looking closely at the fifth stanza, the last verse speaks of the wonder of God. This last verse speaks of the wonder of God's plan of forgiveness and ultimate redemption. Listen to verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Do you see Jesus' resurrection in that? And then he goes on, and by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And then in verse 12, the suffering servant Jesus is exalted. He's lifted up because he's willing to become the scapegoat offered once and for all for our sins. Praise and glory be to our awesome God for his amazing grace and his unconditional love. In the season of Lent, we're going to continue to ponder the importance And the difference this suffering servant has made in each of our lives. It's truly astounding that Isaiah's prophecy was so wondrously fulfilled by the good shepherd who was willing to become the sacrificial lamb of God, taking on himself the sins of the world. As you probably know by now, I love good stories. I love them because they become windows of understanding of particular truths. Consider this story from Chicken Soup for the Soul. Did you know that German composer Felix Mendelssohn's father, or actually grandfather, Moses Mendelssohn, was not a handsome man. In addition to a short stature, he also had a haunched or humped back. When he met a young lady named Frumchi, Moses fell madly head over heels in love. But Frumshi was repulsed by his appearance. Finally, getting the courage to talk to her, Moses asked, Do you believe that marriages are made in heaven? When she said yes, Moses said, In heaven at the birth of each boy, the Lord announces which girl he will marry. When I was born, my future bride was pointed out to me. Then the Lord said, But your wife will be humpbacked. Right then and there, I called out, Oh, Lord, a humpbacked woman should be a tragedy. Please, Lord, give me the hump and let her be beautiful. Frumchi reached out and gave Mendelssohn her hand and later became 
his devoted wife. Wow, what a beautiful story. Oh, dear friends, that's what Jesus, the suffering servant, did for us. It wasn't because we were good or special in any way. In fact, the very opposite was true. Paul recognized this point in Romans 5.8 when he writes, but God demonstrates his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we each consider how we respond to this amazing good news of the suffering servant, what he's done for each of us, the one that is fulfilled and as, a, as a prophecy fulfilled, you might see yourself in this amusing story by Kevin Miller, a pastor and an author. He writes, when I was five years old, I first fully understood the message of these words. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Until that moment, I lived in this childhood bliss in which Christmas was the best day of the year. I had always believed that the gifts at Christmas time were there because Christmas always came with gifts. You could count on them. But now I painfully understood that if I wanted any gifts at Christmas, I had to be good. It was all riding on me. There was an all-seeing, all-knowing Santa. And if there were going to be any gifts, I had better shape up. I grew up a little more and went on to elementary school. In the fourth grade, when I was nine, I continued to learn all the good stuff in life, that all the good stuff in life depends upon my effort. We had a reading program called SRA. Here's how it worked. There was a giant box of color-coded cards on the side of the classroom. You went and got one of the cards in front of the box, read what was on it, and then answered the questions about what you'd read. If you got most of the answers right, you moved up to the next highest color, red, yellow, blue. And if you were good enough and worked hard enough, you reached the exotic colors like magenta. Moving up in SRA was all I cared about because if I were still on one of those lower levels, red or yellow, you were a loser. Everyone's goal was to move up, to really work hard and reach the ultimate pinnacle of fourth grade glory, aquamarine. But if you wanted the glory, you had to hustle. We would literally run from our desks to the box. No pain, no gain. You had to be good enough to work, and you had to work hard enough. I grew up a little more. I was 14 years old, and a friend invited me to a meeting called Campus Life. There was a guy there who had a beard, which automatically made him cool. He also had a guitar, which made him even cooler. He started saying stuff I'd never heard before. He said that if you wanted the good stuff from God, stuff like peace and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, it didn't work like Santa, where you had to be good or you got nothing but coal in your Christmas stocking. He pointed out that it didn't work like the SRA, where it all depended on your being smart enough and hustling enough. He said there was a thing called grace. God had decided to take all my sin, all my screw-ups, and forgive me. Grace had something to do with Jesus dying on the cross for me. And all I had to do was believe. The man read from the Bible, which I hadn't really ever read. 
he read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This message was different than anything I'd heard before. It's not, it was not what I expected. It wasn't all on me. It was all on him, Jesus. That message was freeing, that as I took it in, I almost started to cry. But I was a 14-year-old guy, and we don't do stuff like that. The next week, I thought, I better not go to that meeting again, because I almost started crying last week, and I cannot be humiliated by breaking down in front of my friends. But I did go, and I did hear the message, and I did believe, and I did experience amazing grace. Oh, dear friends, today the message is that the suffering servant was prophecy about Jesus and that we can find forgiveness in our past, joy and peace in our present, and hope for our future. This happens, as Kevin's story tells us, when we receive God's gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you've tried to be good enough or work hard enough and it hasn't worked, then this is revolutionarily Good news. For me, the journey began in a service something like this when I was nine years old. I simply prayed, and maybe this is a prayer that you might pray. Lord, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus suffered and died for my sins. I now receive the gracious gift of eternal life. Thank you for that gift that is now mine. Amen. Certainly, as you look at the suffering servant, maybe you see him calling you to become a servant in new and fresh ways like we talked about last week. Maybe you see him calling you to become a disciple more than you've ever thought about in the past. If you would like to talk and maybe pray with someone afterwards, there will be someone at the cross over here in the alcove to my right. Likewise, any of us in leadership, whether staff or pastors or elders, would love to spend time with you. Please leave a note at the Welcome Center or tell, just tell one of us and we would love to find time to get together and to converse about what this means. Praise God. Jesus is the suffering servant. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the joy of being a part of your family. And we realize, just as is true of our own physical births, that it's not anything that we have done but it's all something that Jesus did and that you allowed him to do as the suffering servant. Oh God, I pray that if there are those here who are struggling with this concept, if there are those here who are hungry for something more, if there are those here who are thirsty for the living water, I pray that you would continue to speak to them through your spirit. And God, I pray that the bottom line might be that they might find you as their own personal Lord and Savior and might find a relationship that is meaningful so that they might become a disciple and become a servant also. God, thank you for this time which we spent together and thank you for your word, which even though written thousands of years ago, still speaks to each one of us where we are, even today. 
I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus the Christ, the now risen and reigning Lord. Amen.